Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. They are my co-hosts. Hello, Aaron. It's always great to talk on Friday afternoon at 5.30. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. It's 5.30. <laughs> it's fast intro times. I'm just going to tell you about who's on the show this week. It's Evan Osnos. He is uh, of The New Yorker was the longtime China correspondent for The New Yorker, wrote some of my favorite pieces ever uh, during that time period. He is back in America now and uh, wrote a book called Wildland that is about three communities that he has roots in and what happened in the lead up to the Trump era in America. I know how much you loved his reporting from China. I'm very excited to hear both his answers, but specifically your questions about it, because I don't, I know it's the thing you were into. I, I'll give a specific plug. Uh, if you haven't checked out any of his pieces, there's one about a bus tour of Europe that he took with a group of Chinese tourists. It's in my personal canon. So uh, check it out, then listen to the interview. Highest possible recommendation. We make this show with Vox. Thanks so much to them. And now here's Aaron with Evan Osnos. Welcome uh, to the show, Evan Osnos. Thanks, Aaron. Glad to be here. I've read a lot of your stories over the years, but I went back through a bunch of them while I was preparing for this. And I realized that some of the stories you've done for The New Yorker that I took as kind of wacky one-offs, like you did a story about the mega yacht industry, which is kind of like a good random New Yorker topic, but I, right. you know, it is what it is. Right. And then I was like, oh, and you do that story about support groups for white collar criminals. Right. And then I, I was sort of checking out your book, which has stuff about growing up in Greenwich, Connecticut. And I was like, oh, Mm-hmm. There's actually a connective thread <laughs> through all of this. There's a Osnos multiverse at play here. <laughs> so I guess a place that I, I would think about starting is just like how you pick stories and how you turn your experiences and your interests into a functional magazine feature kind of topic. Well, uh, first, thank you for going back and detecting the through line. I feel both a little bit seen and a little bit exposed. I think that's that's a true pattern. And there's probably a third point in that line, which is a piece that I did a few years back about billionaires preparing for the end of the world and mm. went to New Zealand. And it was kind of 
a story somewhat in the same octave of trying to understand. And I think this is an answer to your question. I'm always trying to get inside a subculture. That's the thing that I think has been the most enduring, attractive element for me. Is there a world that has its own manners and vocabulary and internal rhythms and status structure and who looks down on whom and why and who venerates whom, who's like a big deal in this in these worlds. And if I can get into that, it doesn't even really matter to me that much what the subculture is. I'm fascinated by trying to map that thing out. Is there a cap to the size something can be and still be considered a subculture? Because you've also written about like um China. <laughs> like yeah, like like you've written about like uh, groups in China that could be considered subcultural, like uh, sort of these neocon patriots. But you also could tell right. me that it's like 50 million people this applies <laughs> to. Yeah, I think that that is actually true, that that sub is doing a lot of work in that description in the sense that what it really is describing is anything that has a perimeter. And I find that persistently interesting. I mean, I, I think it's basically because my origins are as a foreign correspondent. And as a foreign correspondent, you're operating in other languages. But in a way, what is fundamentally the task is trying to make something familiar that is strange. And in some ways, I think the difference between bad foreign correspondent work and good foreign correspondent work is that bad stuff you get to the end of the piece and it feels more distant, more unrelatable, sort of over exotic than it needed to be. And the good stuff is where you get to the end and not to be sort of pat about it, but you're like, well, I guess actually there is a relatable element to this that is beyond just how different the terrain and the geography and the iconography of it all is. What were your like, first experiences with reporting on subcultures like, and what were the sort of important things you learned about trying to, I like the way you put it, pick up the language, the uh, hierarchy, and the sort of sense of meaning. What did you learn about how you find that? I guess for me, it started with when I was at a newspaper for, I worked at the Chicago Tribune for nine years before going to the New Yorker. And I kind of, over time, found myself drawn to those sorts of stories. I, I should point out, I was not a particularly good newspaper reporter because the kinds of things that are usually required, I don't do them very well. Like I'm not especially good at ferreting out some new piece of information that the world doesn't have. But what I am pretty good at doing, it turns out, is just waiting around, listening to how people talk and trying to figure out how they look and listen to one another. And I think probably one of the first stories was a, a minor piece in the history of American journalism. It was like a you know story on probably A14 of the Metro section, but it was about the homeless community in Chicago. And it's the kind of story that young people on a Metro desk are often sent out to do because it requires lingering under literally in Chicago's case, like under bridges, under elevated roadways and talking to people who, you know, the, the 
conversations are kind of weird and discursive and the stories are often impossible to fact check and all these kinds of things. But one of the things I loved hearing about was how they looked at the city. These are people without homes who were like, they looked at the city in a different way than people with with homes. They saw the places that were dry. They saw the places that were dangerous. And they talked about one another, like what were the tribes? What were the groups? Like who hung out in different parts of the city? And I was like totally intoxicated by that. I just thought that was kind of amazing. And that that was actually the only thing I wanted to write about. I really didn't particularly see the policy implications as probably responsibly as I should have as a reporter. But in terms of the sociology or even the kind of anthropology of it, I found that to be, it was, there was a little bit of service in it and there was a little bit of art in it. And the people who did it really well, I was kind of, kind of amazed by. So you worked at a newspaper in uh, West Virginia, which you talk about in your book, you worked at the Chicago Tribune. Yeah. During this period of your life, did you think I'm just going to be on the Metro desk for the rest of my life? Did you have ambitions to do different kinds of stories? What was your trajectory like from there? I actually always really wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I wanted to go overseas. And even curiously enough, when I went to West Virginia as a reporter, it was my first job out of college. I was a photographer, actually. I was a very bad photographer. But it was honestly, Aaron, it was like the same instinct. I was just kind of fascinated by going to a place that I didn't know. Because if I didn't know it, that meant a lot of readers and, and other people wouldn't know it. And that there is value in having some kind of fresh eyes on a topic. You know, I want to stipulate all the obvious ways that can go wrong. You can end up looking really naive or kind of silly. And, and your job in that situation is actually to try to navigate that line. But no, I was desperate to go overseas. And I kind of sort of, I knew that. And I, that's what I read. And that's what I venerated. But I'd already lived in China as a student and studied Chinese when I went to West Virginia. And my colleagues found this to be kind of a sort of strange trajectory. Like, what are you doing here? A lot of people thought I was clearly running from something, like maybe the law. And this seemed to come up occasionally. People would be sort of probing, what do, why, you know, what are you doing? But from my perspective, it was all this incredible adventure. And if it was in West Virginia or in Connecticut or in China, I didn't particularly care. Okay, so you've got this lifelong ambition to be a foreign correspondent. You're reading all of the books, finding out who the people are who do this kind of stuff. And then you actually go and do it. How did reality match up with what you expected and what were the first few months on the job like? They were incredibly isolating. I mean, there's this really specific form of panic, I think, that you experience as a journalist when you land in a country where you've never been. Often it's very complicated. And in my case, it dissipates over time, but it happened to be a particularly rough kind of way to land. My first assignments as a foreign correspondent were to go to the Middle East in the run up to the war in Iraq and to start covering the buildup of American forces this is in the end of 2002. And I was sent off to Saudi Arabia and to Kuwait. And Saudi Arabia is even for people with a lot of reporting experience, a very challenging place to work. It's kind of on the surface, it's incredibly forbidding and sterile. Like nobody will 
talk to you. You don't even know who to call or how to call them or like what you're supposed to wear when you see them and where you're allowed to meet or where you're not allowed to meet. And I felt sort of ridiculous because I didn't speak Arabic and, you know, I eventually went and learned a little bit, but it just was like one of those really humbling moments as a reporter where you just are in that position of saying, I know nothing. (laughs) I know nothing. And you learn pretty quickly that the only way to, to manage that anxiety is to work. I mean, to report. There's nothing more ruinous for a journalist, either as a correspondent abroad or at home than to sort of sit and wait for your story to suddenly present itself. You just have to go out and do a bunch of useless interviews and hopefully not embarrass yourself and and like don't make your interviewees think that you're wasting their time. But I was doing that in Saudi Arabia and in Kuwait and eventually in Qatar and eventually the you know, by the time the war started, I'd been overseas for 4 or 5 months and had kind of begun to understand this world and and that was sort of the beginning and I ended up being overseas for the next decade. How did that compare to China and how did you make the decision to actually move to China and sort of base your life there? I had been interested in China since college. I'd kind of gotten just bitten by that bug. I had no background in the place, but I started studying Chinese politics, just took a class on it. And there was this incredible professor who just passed away not too long ago. His name was Rod McFarquhar. And he was, interestingly enough, father of Larissa McFarquhar, the great New Yorker writer. And and Rod had been a BBC presenter and an MP. And he had this kind of Oxford Don way of lecturing where he would just get up in front of the room and kind of clasp his hands behind his back and then tell you about Chinese history with no notes for the next 55 minutes and then dismiss you all. And it was like, holy smokes, that's the most amazing epic thing. I I, want to do that. And I went and saw him and I was like, I want to do this. I want to learn about China. And he said, well, then you have to learn the language and then eventually you can go abroad. And, And so I sort of did that, more or less just followed his instructions. And then when I went overseas, when I first went to the Middle East, I concluded pretty early on that I was not up to the task of reporting on on the Middle East. It was a place that, like China, it sort of, it should punish the novice because if you don't speak the language, you haven't done the reading and you haven't really sort of paid your dues, you're going to end up necessarily sort of regurgitating what other people have done. And I remember I was working at a time when people like the late Anthony Shadid, who I think a lot of listeners will remember, was this amazing reporter for the Washington Post before that Boston Globe, and he died very tragically. But Shadid was like at the peak of his powers, and he was just so good. And he had such depth of knowledge. And oftentimes, the things that he was interested in were like little quirks of language. He could pick up these little subtleties in the way that Baghdadi Arabic was different than the way somebody would say it in Beirut. And like, what did what was the meaning of that? What did it tell you? And even now, I mean, this is now 20 years later, and I, you know, I'm working on a piece right now for The New Yorker where it's a China-related story, and I find myself gravitating to these little expressions, you know, three or four characters at the most, and it can open up an entire culture, but you have to sort of pay your dues enough to know what to look for. And I, so anyway, the long story, I didn't, I decided I was never going to be able to do that in the Middle East. I hadn't done the, the work. And so I was sort of fortunate I had a chance to basically say to the Tribune at the time, I, I really want to go to China. And they said, fine, go. And so I went over there and and just kind of worked constantly. Okay. So you arrive in China. You have slightly better skills for it than the Middle East, but like not a ton. You've got like the language 
foothold, but you have no experience reporting in China and I assume like no contacts or sources really in China. And the aperture of that story is like wide open as the aperture can be like anywhere in the world, probably in terms of like how many possibilities of what you could pursue. What was your strategy? Like how did you get on the horse? Well, it can be totally paralyzing actually to have a story that's sort of an attack surface that's too vast, particularly when the when the stakes are so big. And, and I remember I got a good piece of advice. Somebody was like, don't psych yourself out. Find a small handle that you can grab onto, a tiny piece, and just write that story. And then that gets you a little bit of momentum and so on. And so the first story I did like could not be more in some ways banal, but also as you'll see, kind of enduring, I suppose, which is I wrote about the popularity of basketball in China. It had just begun to take off. And I used to walk every day. I would walk to my Chinese class and I passed this this basketball court where there were kids kind of in these like oversized Kobe Bryant jerseys and they were all playing. And there was like, you know, in Chinese, there was this new thing. Everybody was talking about which meant litter talk, like trash talk. And I was like, there's something deep about the U.S.-China encounter playing out on that court. I don't quite know what it is. You know, so I called up the NBA, which had just started coming to China. They had like a couple of people there. Now it's vast. It's like a, you know, multi-billion dollar business and very complicated politically in all the ways we know. But I just called them up and I was like, you know, what's going on? Why is basketball succeeding here? Whereas other sports have not. And that was like, you know, my first story. And then another story came upon really sort of in the same way, which is I was walking home one day and it's kind of a tragic tale, but I was walking home and there was a crowd of people standing at the base of a building. And I, I went up and I said, what's going on? And they said, oh, there's, uh, there's a guy up there who's going to jump. And I kind of joined this crowd of people. And I just looked up and I was like, why is he going to jump? And everybody in the crowd had a different explanation for why he was threatening suicide. And as these things go, their explanations had more to say about them than it did about the actual person who was up there. And it was like, that's the kind of story that I wanted to write, because it was a way of cutting through this kind of exotic effect of being a foreign correspondent and getting inside of what were their own interior dramas. You know, people had their own lives. They were like, oh, he probably has a problem with his wife or somebody was like, I bet he's behind on his mortgage. I mean, all of these kinds of things. And so, you know, that was not a particularly newsy story. But from my perspective, that was like the kind of story I wanted to write. What was your day-to-day life like socially there like who what what world did you exist within in china and and like what do people think about it a guy who who worked for the new yorker or an american publication who is living there and and sort of asking questions it was a a strange combination of both being welcoming and fundamentally very suspicious you know people would be oftentimes I think we would surprise a lot of Americans just how welcoming your average Chinese person will be if you encounter them, particularly out in the hinterlands. I mean, just statistically, very often I'd go into a town and I'd say hello to somebody and reasonably sure that was the first time they'd ever met a foreigner just by sheer numbers. You know, maybe they'd met a foreigner, but maybe they hadn't met an American. And because of generations of propaganda, they had also been trained to remember that anybody who presents themselves as a foreign journalist is obviously a spy 
and is a spy determined on breaking China apart and driving you back into poverty. And so there was this strange kind of, I think, temperamental instinct that people would often have to be quite helpful. And they would you know, constantly be sort of inviting you into their houses. And at the same time, they were like, oh, that's right, though. I have to remember that you're a villain and you're intent on destroying what we have. And so the first piece I ever did for The New Yorker was about a boxer. I wanted to get access to a Chinese athlete. It was right before the Olympic Games. And they didn't really allow Olympic athletes very much access to foreign journalists. And the only way I was sort of fortunate to do it was that I'd gotten to know a local reporter who worked for the state newspaper, the like mouthpiece of the Communist Party. And he was the boxing writer there. And I was like, you know, do you think you would ever introduce me? And it was kind of a risky thing for him to do. They're not supposed to do that. Now it's actually against the law. You know, he would get in a lot of trouble. But he said, yeah, I'll do that. And I think the lesson I did take from that was that China, as an authoritarian culture with these rigid boundaries, is also a completely improvisational place where if you show up and you're just kind of weird enough and persistent enough to find yourself to the right place or to ask the right question and to look just sort of dopey and curious, eventually they might actually let you do the thing that you're trying to do. And that's, as a journalist, kind of an extraordinarily wonderful place to work. I mean, much more thrilling than being in New York City or in, you know, somewhere where things are much more kind of predictable and orderly. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listen to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Thinking about that like line, you're not supposed to do that. You could get in trouble for that. At least in the China that's depicted in a lot of your writing, all of those lines are very hazy and people sort of talk about them, but can't point to exactly where they're written and how they learned where that line was. What was it like navigating those lines and how should Americans sort of understand, like an American who wants to write about China, where are the lines and, and are they different if you're living in China or not living in China, I guess, also? Yeah, there's this concept in Chinese that I remember somebody tipped me to after I'd been there for a while in Chinese. It's called the like Chen Guizhi, which means the unwritten rules. And the unwritten rules is like 
something that every Chinese person knows. And it's fluid. And the unwritten rules are, you know, as the name suggests, they're constantly evolving. And what was possible on Monday might be impossible Tuesday and vice versa. And that creates a tremendous amount of risk. I mean, that's very dangerous for people because things that you thought you could get away with suddenly are against the rules. And, you know, you see this on a high level when it comes to like corruption, that there was a whole generation of tycoons that made just unbelievable fortunes. This is what was happening, particularly in the period right after I'd gotten to China. That was sort of very much like the 19th century in the United States, kind of these huge fortunes that were being accumulated. And then at a certain point, the government, it's not as if the government didn't know what was happening. At a certain point, the government was like, okay, we're turning off the tap on some of this. But then a lot of those people suddenly were like thrown into jail for the rest of their lives. As a journalist, the thing you're actually most concerned about, almost obsessed with sometimes, is how to not expose Chinese sources and people who've helped you, because that's the point of vulnerability. It's it's harder for the government to really punish a foreign journalist. That's not to say it won't happen. It, it does happen. People get kicked out in large numbers, actually. But when it comes to the to the real risk, which is to say somebody getting locked up, getting their families locked up, you're constantly worried about what happens if they know who I talk to. How about if they figure out based on cell phone data or they figure out based on the fact that I follow this person on social media. And so there's quite a lot of, there are techniques that you have to do in order to be really vigilant about, about avoiding exposing people. And it's, it's gotten much harder over time. Yeah. I was thinking about um, the profile you wrote of G. Am I saying that mm-hmm. right? G? Yeah. Yeah. Um, she, we, yeah. All right. I'll, I'll just, I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, and if you look at most of the quoted sources, and this is a story of, about the life of probably the permanent leader of China. So it's not exactly an obscure story. Almost all of the quoted sources are other foreign journalists. Hmm. I, I'm probably wrong, but I'm not sure there's like really anything where it's like, this is from a Chinese source. And is there a flip side to that equation where you are talking to Chinese sources who you just can't say? And, you know, with a story like that, that's sort of about the foundational mythology of a leader, how do you even get back to like basic reporting on a story like that, that is so incredibly sensitive that there are entire censorship regimes within the publishing industry basically dedicated to suppressing information about some of these topics. Well, it's interesting in that situation, in that story, a lot of the people that I was quoting, oftentimes it would be Chinese publications that had interviewed him early in his life. So I would, when I quoted him, what I would get was like him talking to a regional newspaper in some little part of China when he was like an up and coming Paul. And in some ways, those interviews had sort of been forgotten by, you know, they'd sort of been overlooked, I think, by the the censorship apparatus, partly because they weren't overtly controversial. You know, it would be him expressing things like his deep belief in the need to raise 
benefits for military veterans, which is like the most anodyne comment, except that all of us who follow Chinese politics know that what he was doing was something very shrewd, which was that he was establishing himself as a civilian leader who is going to flatter and support the military. And so like the smallest detail that he used to wear green military pants, sometimes even when he was wearing his civilian top on his outfit was like suddenly like a wonderful little tell. So I just was sort of harvesting all of these details from these old Chinese interviews. I have to be a little bit careful about how I explain the ways that I was alerted to the existence of some of these. You know, I can say that at the time, Hong Kong was still a more navigable place. It's it's now more dangerous to quote people and to talk to people in Hong Kong. Or you have to be more careful about it. But at the time, Hong Kong still had more of a, a sphere of autonomy. And so there were ways in which I could get tips on like, hey, if you went and you look in this file, you may find something fruitful. And that was essential. And that piece was kind of, it was early in Xi Jinping's tenure, but it was already clear that he had these tendencies. And I I was, you know, we sometimes at the New Yorker think of what we're doing as like trying as best we can to understand people's psychic origins, what made them and the story was called born red because in chinese there's a term that if you were born red it meant that that was your essential nature and that turned out to be the defining characteristic about xi jinping i'm curious i know that um the new yorker has a pretty stringent fact checking policy yeah and you have details in that story like that probably allegedly xi's half sister committed suicide as a result of similar persecution to the persecution that he faced as the son of a disgraced party elite. Yeah. What happens when you try to fact check a fact of that uh, variety? Yeah. There are moments when you reach kind of the outer limits of the epistemological (laughs) meaning of fact checking how how do you go back and figure out how somebody died in the late 60s early 70s whose life has been systematically erased from the public record and even in many cases the private record and the answer is that we had very very good sources on that particular detail and there were people who I was talking to from many different governments who have made it their job to try to assemble what they could about this guy in the event that he became the top dog. And so those are things that you have to be very vigilant about. Those fingerprints are not really visible in a story. But I could tell you, though, it's it's funny. I mean, fact-checking is such an essential part of now. I've been at The New Yorker for 14 years, I guess. And so I'm constantly sort of thinking all the time as I'm reporting, like, do I even put this into my draft? Because will it check? Like, can we check it? How do we check it? And so there's constantly things that you just kind of, you self check and take it out before you even put it in. Cause you're like, I just, there's no universe in which we're going to get this person to acknowledge this, even if we know it's true. So it's a bias for kind of a conservative approach to information. I mean, this sounds totally like shameless marketing for the New Yorker, except that I happen to believe it which is that like if something appears in the magazine and it's been through a check 
I can't say with 100% reliability that it's true, but it's probably the most rigorously examined piece of information that you've read that day. <laughs> so I don't have like a like a real background in journalism myself, which means that in doing this show, I've sort of fumbled my way through in the dark. And one of the interesting things when you, when you brought up the idea of unwritten rules, yeah. You know, I've asked all sorts of people who've been in the show, you know, well, this is on the record and this is off the record mm. and this counts for fact checking, but this would not count for <laughs> fact checking. And I always, because yeah. these are very intelligent people, I always want to ask the question, I get it, but where did that rule come from? Yeah. How did that rule get communicated to you? And how do you like know that that's the rule? And I've, <laughs> I've never quite gotten to the bottom of that, you know? It's totally true. I mean, this is the nature of journalism is that it is, you know, somebody once said to me when I was starting out, you know, just remember, this is white collar bricklaying that we're doing here. Like, it's a craft that is like, you're kind of, you're an apprentice. And that was partly a reminder, like, stay in your place. I was, you know, brand new and I didn't know anything. I didn't know what I didn't know. And so like, part of the challenge of being a young reporter now is that so much of that stuff is just communicated to you being in a newsroom or hanging around with an older reporter. If there is no newsroom that you can be a part of, when I started in the, at the Tribune newsroom, I remember there was a guy who was working on a story at the neighboring desk. He was a great investigative reporter who was working on a story about abuse in prison. And all day long for weeks, he was picking up the phone calling somebody in prison, like a prisoner who would agree to talk to him, he would talk to him and I could hear him just being like, oh my God, oh my God, that's a horrible story. And he would write it down he would, and he would listen, he would like research this stuff, he'd report and then he'd say, all right, put somebody else on. And he would do this just hour after hour after hour. And it was like, that was the education. I mean, you, you know, yeah, I suppose. And certainly you can get a degree in journalism, but really like that was an education. Just hearing the way that this guy was so non-judgmental and persistent and curious and empathetic and also just unbelievably tireless. And then by the time the story came out, you know, only the tiniest little bit of the iceberg was visible, but he had done so much that anyway, I think that's sort of how those rules are transmitted. I mean, I think in the really specific sense of like what constitutes something that is fact-checked, the New Yorker has a real system. I, I'm actually kind of a, you know, the, the way the checkers operate, where, for instance, they are both like, you know, they're sort of part of helping you finish your story, but they're also a little bit like an audit department that's making sure that you're getting what you say you're getting. And so it's this interesting dynamic where like, if you say, uh, my guy told me that he gave somebody a bag of cash even if you don't have the name of the person that he gave the bag of cash to, they have to find out from the source, okay, who did the bag of cash go to? Or, or if you won't say, like, how do we check that that bag of cash actually went to somebody? And so there is this process of no thread is left dangling as best as possible. And I think it can be alarming for people who come to the New Yorker as a writer and have never been through that experience. It's sort of immediately alarming. And then it's just the most amazing sensation to realize, oh, wow, there's a whole structure that is designed to try to test like the tensile strength of what you're saying and figure out if it's right or wrong. And that's kind of amazing, actually. Can you think of a like tenuous fact 
in one of your stories that has required a lot of back and forth to either outcome, really. I'm, I'm curious, like, yeah, what have been the hardest facts that you've pursued or, or, you know, really had to dig into? Well, I mean, I can give you an example of a fact that seems like the most minor fact in the world, but it, this is a reflection of how it enters your psychology as a writer. I remember I was reporting a piece in China about a tycoon, a, a really rich woman who'd made her money making cardboard. And I'd gotten this interview with her out of the most kind of strange circumstances. She'd rejected all these interviewed requests. And I finally, in desperation, had shown up at like her annual earnings call where she was going to sort of make a decree to reporters and everybody's going to write down the statistics. And this is, sounds like a, it, it's was planned, but it wasn't. I literally walked in the wrong door in the hotel. I like barged into a door that I thought was the room into the press conference room. And it turned out it was like the green room where she was sitting there waiting to go out there. And this is a case of, as a foreigner, you get this sort of dividend of just getting a break that a Chinese reporter would not have gotten. She was like, oh, this person wearing a necktie, kind of weirdly wandering into the room, he must be somebody of consequence because surely nobody would be so stupid as to wander into my green room accidentally. And I just started talking. And I was like, I'm going to just talk until I get physically ejected from here. And I eventually I sort of forced her to agree to uh, let me come for an interview. And then we had the interview later and so on. But Later, when I was writing the story, it was the lead. I wanted to say that she was sitting on a silk sofa at such and such a place. But I knew as I was writing it, I was like, I don't know if that sofa is actually silk or if it's like nylon or rayon. And so I <laughs> first, this is sort of embarrassing to confess, but I, my now wife, we were dating at the time and I was like, you know, she was going to Hong Kong for something. And I was like, any chance you could swing by the hotel and go up to this room and take a photo of the sofa? And I think it's a miracle <laughs> that she did, she did not break up with me immediately. But she was like, OK, she did that. But the data was inconclusive as far as I was concerned. So I then was like, OK, I can't tell from this photo what this thing is. I'm going to call the hotel and speak to the engineering department. And they eventually did. And they got me on the phone with the engineering department. And they, I said, what is the fabric of that couch? And they actually told me they're like, whatever. They like found the thing and they were like 55 percent rayon, 40 percent this, whatever. And I was so satisfied and I like put it into my story. It sounds deranged even telling it now. And then of course it got cut. And I was like, <laughs> uh, so I learned a lesson, which is, you know, don't worry too much of your, of your darlings to death because they'll probably get cut in the end, but there we are. I have one more sort of question of, about the sourcing, I guess, within China thinking outside of like the facts and the whole sort of like, you know, contentious, like, uh, Tiananmen Square kind of events. Yeah. Just looking at like the lives of people, whether they're ordinary people or low level communist party officials, how do you find out what people's opinions are? What people really think? I, I'll tell you, this is the thing that keeps a person reporting on China for many, many years, which is that people are can be shockingly candid. And there's mm. something that's strangely very familiar to us as Americans that we recognize this among ourselves as Americans that, you know, you'll, you have that experience of like you sit down in the airplane seat next to somebody and within two minutes they've confessed some kind of astonishing 
view or secret or you know something that you're just kind of like I can't quite believe that this person just told me that and this happens in China very often I think there's something to do with the fact that most people have never been interviewed and they find the encounter kind of a little bit startling and there's not a lot of artifice and look I think obviously there are things that you can I've also had the experience of knowing people in China for years and years and years and them never bringing up something that they regard as like too personal but often it's it, that's not a political view. That might be like something about their family history that they find mm. unbearable to mention. But no, there is something about China that is bracingly blunt and makes for great writing, actually. And I think that's the piece that's almost maybe the hardest to sense from very far away, if you've never been, is the degree to which there is something in these two very different cultures that I think we actually can kind of understand as Americans when we start talking to people. I feel like the piece that you capture that the best in and is probably my favorite piece of China-related reporting you've done is a piece you wrote about going on a bus tour of Europe with oh, yeah. a bunch of Chinese tourists. And it's almost like the perfect Rorschach because... <laughs> It's an American reporter reporting on Chinese tourists' impression of tourist Europe, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's through a bunch of different lenses, which allow people to sort of express themselves openly. Like, no one's, like, worried about offending you as they compare the relative merits of French and Chinese food or anything like that. <laughs> I have to say, there are stories that happen every once in a while where you kind of you get into a reporting experience and you're like, that's kind of the platonic ideal of a reporting experience. And, you know, that came about that piece as sometimes the best kind of most fun stories do in the simplest possible way, which was Daniel Zaleski at The New Yorker had just noticed that there was this big spike in Chinese tourism. And he said, you know, do you want to do a piece? And I think he either said it or I just assumed what he meant was, do you want to sign up for a Chinese tour and go along with it? And that was like, well, that's obviously the only way to write this piece. And to this day, I was kind of amazed that like, I, you know, I, I remember I just looked around, found a, some tours and said, is it okay? I'm a reporter. I'm an American. And this is one of those great things where like the tour operator didn't care. He was like, sure, whatever. As long as you pay your, your money, I don't care. So I got on the tour and immediately just, you know, I explained to the tour guy, I said, I'm a journalist. I'm going to be writing about this experience for my magazine. I'd like to talk to everybody. And he's like, fine, that's fine. I'll, I'll tell everybody who you are, whatever. And so they said, you know, here's the reporter. And, and people were just unbelievably vivid and funny and candid and vulnerable and like self-conscious and imperious. It was like you got the full spectrum of human emotion by listening to how Chinese first-time tourists thought of Europe. <laughs> in a situation like that, like what's your personality like? Like when you realize you're like in the perfect situation, it's basically just going to happen, but you're actually physically there like in a bus. Yeah. What's your vibe like? I, I think there's two ways to answer. One is about the craft of it. And then there's a, a sort of emotional answer, both of which are relevant. The craft thing is you discover very early on doing a story like this, you have to take such close notes about the very, very first couple of days, because I don't care what structure you use when you're writing, the first couple of days, the first couple of hours are absolutely essential. 
if you miss the detail on that, you may never be able to get that piece quite right. So I kind of knew that going in. And so I was like forensic level of detail about what people were wearing and, you know, all that kind of stuff about the first couple of days, because it's first encounters are very important for that structure. But then the question you're really asking, which is, what am I like in Chinese? You know, what am I, because you are a different person in a different language. And all of us have a reporting persona of some kind. And, you know, some people are very combative. Other people are like, okay, I, I need to come in with a, maybe not combative, but they say, I come in with a, with a theory because if I don't have a theory, there's nothing to bounce the ball off of. And I don't, I don't know how to get anything going. I have a pretty sort of embarrassingly low tech way, which is that I just, I show up, I tend to be kind of curious and genial and just kind of the single most important question I ask is just tell me more. And in Chinese, that's especially true because, you know, you don't have the powers of kind of the subtlety of small gesture and talk. You you kind of say, I can say what I can say and so on, and I can communicate and I can be a person. But oftentimes people will find that in another language, you're kind of innocent mm. and a little bit childlike. And I think that can work to one's advantage because it's less imposing. It's less forbidding. And in that story, also, you know, part of it was I was recording everything. I had my recorder in my hand. So I'm walking around, I'm talking to everybody, I'm recording everything. And there was so much material. There's no way that I was gonna be able to understand it all in real time or make use of it. So I was sending tapes back to Beijing. And I was so lucky. I had a brilliant translator who could listen to the tape and take notes from the tape because as I'm always looking for, it's those little tiny things. And so I could be having a conversation with somebody, I could interview them perfectly fine. But if they used some local expression that would turn out to pry the whole piece open, I would have missed that in the time. There's just no way. I mean, I just, the best example of that, it's a little bit off color, but kind of fascinating is, I remember I was writing about a, a Chinese corrupt minister. And at one point along the way, I was talking to somebody about this corrupt minister and somebody used an expression just offhand. He said, yeah, you know, you take too big a leap and you can tear your balls. And I said, I'm sorry, what? And it was the kind of expression that suddenly was like the union between like history and earthy, just real lifeness. And I was like, my work is done. My work is done. <laughs> I feel like that one could succeed in America. I feel like you could you could popularize <laughs> that one if you push it hard enough. I, I do see it has legs. It has legs if, if needed. So you came back from China. You wrote this book, uh, Wildlands which follows three areas that have sort of a historical relevance to you. Uh, one in West Virginia, uh, Chicago, and uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. After this period away where you were an outsider, did you feel like an outsider coming back and talking to people in America? How did it change your relationship to these places that you had been before? It, really even more of an outsider than I thought I was going to feel. I sort of figured, oh, I'm coming home, you know, I'll slip back into the rhythms. But I think part of it was having moved to Washington, which is as exotic a destination as any reporting assignment. Like talk about a subculture. I mean, it's got its own subtle rhythms of like, which are the events that you go to and which are the events you don't go to. You know, Talk about status. I mean, everybody in Washington, both in, in government and then in the sort of para kind of culture that surrounds it, all of that stuff was like some kind of old Jesuit code that I didn't understand. I knew nothing about it. So I remember the very first day I was back, 
it was weird. It happened to be a newsy day. My very first day of being back in the US for the New Yorker, the government shut down. It was 2013. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I did what I would do if it happened in Cairo or if it happened in Beijing, which is I just sort of went out and started talking to people on the street around the capital. And in the end, it turns out, I look back on it, I ended up going back to that piece. And I was like, oh, that actually turned out to be a kind of a useful exercise. Because if I'd been on the phone sort of calling the same dreary set of PR people working for members of Congress, talk about a useless exercise. But actually, I ended up talking to this couple from Finland who were there and like hearing it's sort of a version of the Chinese tour story. I guess I'm always rewriting that story in my own mind. But like they were looking at the Capitol, all the museums were closed and they're hauling their suitcases around. And they're like, does this happen very often in your government? And I was like, well, actually, good question. And they're like, well, when will it reopen? And I was like, I don't actually know. And I don't think anybody knows. And so there was a degree to which kind of ref- sort of bank shotting it through their experience turned out to be much more productive than trying to just declare it. But I think coming back, I, I sort of often feel that the longer I'm back, the less useful I am here. I, I think there should be almost like a, a requirement to kind of move out of your reporting terrain every once in a while and do something different. And I think that's probably why the book is very much a place-based thing, because I found that going from one place to the next kept my instruments sharp. I would mm. see things that I hadn't seen before and I would notice change over time. And that was essential to this. Is that like important to you to like break the physical space to be like, I'm going somewhere else and I'm on a reporting trip. I'm not like at my house on the internet. Yes. Yeah, it, it is. I think this is a little bit of the old kind of photographer's instinct too. I mean, I, I really did love learning how to be a photographer. And I think there's so, you can't fake it as a photographer. Like you you can never be closer than you actually were. And so as a reporter, you can kind of fill in the details and write that sort of florid anecdotal lead that makes it sound as if there was like the smell of cordite in your nostrils. When it was all bullshit, you were like back at the rear of the unit. Well, and I recognized pretty early on, I was not that guy who was actually going to be at the very front. I didn't have that instinct in me, but I had enough of that experience and enough of that instinct to know that you have to get out there and be in motion and be kind of gathering that stuff. And so, yeah, I I do find that I'm kind of, my neurons are firing when I'm in a cheap hotel eating food that's probably going to kill me. And that's actually when I know that I'm probably getting decent material. When you're in that cheap motel, and you're like, okay, I got X number of days here. And then I got to like go back to my other life. And maybe I'm like writing two other pieces, whatever. So you got like a, a finite bookmarked beginning and end. How do you fill your days? How do you decide hmm. these are the things, these are the strands. I'm going to try to do these things to provoke some kind of an experience I can write about. Well, I, I should say my wife makes a lot of fun of me when I go out on reporting trips because I'm kind of yeah, you know, I've been doing this now for 20 some years and I'm still like completely sure that each one is going to be a complete and total disaster and I will get no material and nothing will occur and nobody will speak and it'll just be this complete catastrophe and the New Yorker will shut down for loss of revenue and everybody will be cast out in the street. I don't know. I just, that's a little bit, so a friend of mine once called it coiling the spring that like you have to have that feeling as you go into it. And I mean, recently I did this piece about yachts, about super yachts. And that was actually curiously, it sounds ludicrous to say, but it was like a kind of a hard story to get going because 
getting people to talk is not always easy in, in worlds like that. And there's a lot of ways I could have reported it from the sort of nose pressed up against the glass that would not be worth doing. And it was certainly not what we wanted. We wanted to try to get as into it as much as possible. And that was a case where the reporting started, it was like with very little, I didn't have a lot of the sort of pre-reporting that I would like to have, where I sort of know as I go down to a place, all right, I know I'm going to get these two interviews and they'll get me started. And then those will lead me to others. And those will lead me to others. I had like one person who would agree to talk to me. And and I showed up and I started talking to that person and I was kind of just trying to, to leech everything I possibly could from what she was saying that would point me to the next person that I would then be able to use this little tiny edge where I could say so-and-so mentioned this and see if that might pry open a level of comfort and candor. Because on a story like that, and I've done a, a few of these now, the curve goes vertical because in the beginning you have nothing because nobody believes what you're doing and why you're there. And then at a certain point, once you've talked to enough people, everybody just assumes that you're there for a reason and that you've been kind of vetted collectively by the hive mind. And then everybody says everything. And at that point, then it's like kind of amazing because you can begin to bounce people's experiences and perspective off each other. And, it, and that's where the sort of electricity begins to happen. That's how you start to get the good stuff, which is what do people feel about one another? Who's the big dog? Who's the small dog? And I, this sounds kind of strange, but I'm not actually interested in power, in the structure of power. I don't find that particularly interesting. But I find that it is a really great ingredient in generating art, like that if you can figure out how one person regards another person, that's the beginning of describing a social dynamic that can rise to something more than just the immediate scene. It's funny, the way that you described like getting in the yacht world is kind of how you'd like, basically like how a con man inserts himself into a community. It's like, <laughs> oh, I, I, I met him through that guy. That that rich guy vouched for him. Like, he's cool, right? <laughs> but, the, you know, on some level, like being a reporter and particularly being a foreign correspondent is that. I mean, you're always trying to say, like, who's going to let me into the village? That's like always the question is who's going to let me into the village? And eventually somebody will let you into the village. And then once you're in, nobody remembers to ask, well, who let this guy into the village? And then it doesn't really matter because very often once you're done, if you're doing your job well, you're not there to then be, you know, the story is not just like, ha I've made it in. Like the story is then to render it in some vivid detail where the participants see themselves in it. And then it doesn't matter, you know, they don't really care that nobody remembers actually, oh yeah, we didn't know this guy six months ago. And now we all know this guy. Okay, so you you got in the village in China for a while, left the village, spent some time in certain American villages, culminating in this book, which I think is about to be out in uh, paperback. Where do you go from here? What's what's your next arc? Hmm. What interests you that you haven't really had a chance to go for yet? You know, I think there is a, a degree to which I'm always interested in the gap between what people say about themselves publicly and how they actually live. I know that sounds a little bit abstract and vague. I, I'm being a little bit cautious about a project that I'm working on. I mean, I can see how you thought about that a lot mm. in China. To me, that's mm. the hardest part of the Chinese experience to square as an American is that there's this secret world. I can't remember what what's the sort of elite 
area called where, where like the kids all of the elites oh yeah well in beijing there are these there are a few compounds and a few schools and everybody like knows each other and grows up together yeah the fact that that can exist inside this like larger society and the way that that class talks about themselves that that can exist is always to me like the premium cable version of what my brain (laughs) thinks about in china that that experience you know yeah i had the same experience i remember when i first came upon this world and discovered that actually the thing it reminded me most of was like the old wasp aristocracy that the children of these communist party revolutionaries, you know, they grew up together. I remember I used the, the verb to summer. I used it in that piece deliberately. I said they summered together because it was very similar that way. It was like, you know, they didn't go to Maine, but they went to Beidaihe and they went to like these places where they would all just like get to know each other. And you had to know whose roommate so-and-so had been. And, you know, in the most kind of funny communist way, were they clubbable, you know? And I think that's a through line that goes between work that I've done in places like Greenwich or in places like Beijing, is that I find that question, in the end, it comes down, I mean, we call it class. And that's probably the word that is most politically available. And it's, you know, I do, I write a lot about politics in the straight sense, but I'm always actually really thinking about class and status and structure. I'm always fascinated by that because I think it's kind of the, the dark matter that drives a lot of our politics and it takes on different names. You know, we call it justice at some points and we call it cast at other points, but really what it comes down to is about status in a society. And that society can be 200 people in a village in the mountains, or it might be 200 people at a super yacht village in Palm Beach. And either one is kind of interesting to me. Evan, thank you so much for this interview. My pleasure, Aaron. Thanks for having me. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to my guest, Evan Osnos. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor on this episode, Gabriella Saldivia. Thanks to Susan Peterson, who did the show notes. Oh, special, special shout to Susan on the birth of her daughter. We are all very excited, and we'll be back next week. Support for Longform this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.